Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear dance educator Mary Wood speaking with principal dancer Francis Chung and soloist Esteban Hernandez about the potadas in The Sleeping Beauty. This episode was recorded as a points of view lecture on Wednesday, March 13th, 2019, before a performance of Helgi Thomason's The Sleeping Beauty. Hope you enjoy. So thank you, Jenny, and I want to add my welcome to all of you to this Points of View program and to um, the program of the season, which is Sleeping Beauty, which happens to be a personal favorite, so I may just go on and on. You know, you can reach over and say, that's enough, Mary, they've heard it. (laughs) But anyway, so welcome, and I am really, really delighted that I have with me principal dancer Frances Chung and soloist Esteban Hernandez, and I want to thank you both for taking the time to be with us and have this conversation about Sleeping Beauty. So welcome. Um, We're going to look specifically at some of the great set pieces that um, within the ballet that we've inherited from its very earliest history. And I want to say to start with that um, no dancer or teacher or ballet master or director or historian or educator can talk about the Sleeping Beauty without using superlatives. It's the best of everything. Um, And just to give a little context um, so we're all on the same page, um, the ballet premiered in 1890 at the Mariansky Theater in St. Petersburg. The production was conceived by the director of the Imperial Theater's Ivan Sevolashsky, along with the great ballet master Marius Pedipa, who created the choreography. Uh, the musical score was commissioned from Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky. The ballet has stayed in nearly continuous repertory, with some fairly minor revisions, in the Russian ballet companies ever since. It was first seen in the West in London in 1921, produced by the Diaghilev Ballet Russe, and at that time there were some additional revisions and some modifications. But most of the choreography was retained from the original, thanks to the staging by the former regisseur of the Imperial Imperial Theater, um, Nikolai Sergeyev who left what was then Soviet Russia with uh, apparently trunks of notes about all of the great ballets, and so they were preserved for us in that way. And it was he who staged it for the young English company, the Sadler's Wells, now the Royal Ballet of England, and the immortal Margot Fontaine in 1937. And that production revived and enhanced after World War II, and then appearing in the United States, in New York, in 1949, um, has really set the bar for all productions in the West ever since. And Helgi Thomason's production for San Francisco Ballet premiered in 1990 on the 100th anniversary, and it has been challenging our dancers for nearly 30 years. That's just amazing. Um, So, to tag on to what I said earlier, no dancer can escape the impact of this ballet. It's in the classes, it's in the style, it's in the repertoire, 
It's embedded in our heritage. And in fact, every move that a dancer makes is a reflection of the legacy of the Imperial Russian Ballet. So Sleeping Beauty is considered to exemplify all of the ideals of the golden age of the Imperial Russian Ballet. We call it the crowning achievement of um, choreographer Marius Petipa, who you're looking at. And why else do we remember him? Don Quixote, Le Corsair, La Bayadere, um, Raimonda, and then, oh yes, Swan Lake. Um, Sleeping Beauty exemplifies his vision of classicism, which we can summarize by saying formalism, harmony, precision, crystalline execution, they're cringing. Um, and then it's the ultimate test for the ballerina dancing Aurora. And she's nodding. Agreed. Um, and then the music. The composer, Tchaikovsky, was already a serious sym uh, symphonic and operatic composer. And that was a change, an evolution from the previous practice of employing a staff composer such as Minkus. There are musicologists who suggest that this music is among the best that Tchaikovsky wrote, let alone the most perfect ballet, the most perfect ballet music. And we've talked about music, and well, we could go on for hours about the music, but we can't, so. Uh, so now let's dive into the ballet, taking a closer look at um, just what makes it the apex of the classical canon. <clears throat> In all current productions, the, uh, the story is the same, and the main characters are the same. Individual choreographers or directors take some liberties with staging and uh, modifying, blocking, maybe some ensemble work, but um, certainly some editing takes place. The uncut score is four hours long. Um, here... In our version, Helgi has faithfully preserved the most famous and the beloved of the Petipa, we call them set pieces, the Rose Adagio in the first act, the fairy variations in the prologue, um, the Bluebird, Pas de Deux, and the third act, Wedding, Pas de Deux. And we believe that these have been handed down pretty faithfully since 1890. They undoubtedly have a different look a hundred years ago. Um, bodies are more streamlined. Technique has evolved. Um, carriage of the body, comportment on stage has maybe changed some. Um, but Petipa would still recognize them, I think, as the pieces he created. So I want to start with, um, let's see. How about, there's the Princess Aurora with Prince Desiree and some little pages holding her. This is from the, court, the, the wedding scene in the original production. Um, so Francis, let's talk about Aurora. <clears throat> Francis Chung has been a company member since 2001 and a principal dancer for, since 2009. So you're celebrating a, about a 10-year anniversary, huh? Um, you are a veteran, Aurora. You performed the role last year when the 
piece was revived after quite a break. Um, among your achievements uh, as a principal dancer, are you familiar with the Izzy's, the Isadora Duncan Awards for Dance Achievement in the Bay Area? Francis won the 2013 Izzy for Outstanding Achievement in Individual Performance. So you have been a very valuable member of our thank you, team. Um, let's pause at this moment to just say, um, you, we aren't seeing you as Aurora this year. You're taking a little break, and you get to tell us about that. Well, my husband and I are expecting, uh, <laughs> so I am not performing this season, but we're very excited. I'm actually still taking class every day and um, trying to stay in shape, but uh, yeah, I don't have the pressure of being on stage. Well, so, costumes are a little tighter <laughs> these days, too. So, <laughs> so um, if I did the math correctly, we can hope to see you <clears throat> return to the stage at Nutcracker? Um, yeah, I mean, you can't really ever plan these things, but uh, that would be my goal. That's correct. And you said something kind of funny right before <laughs> we came out. I just joke that, uh, you know, Nutcracker is something for dance. We do it every season, and we've, we do 30-plus shows. So um, ever since I joined the company, I've done every single Nutcracker, and... Um, I don't know. As dancers, I mean, we love the ballet because it's still challenging after doing it uh, for however many years. But um, yeah, I will not have missed the Nutcracker <laughs> in my 18 years here. That's great. I finished with Nutcracker and I'll hopefully start with Nutcracker. So um, laying a little groundwork now for our discussion about Aurora and the Sleeping Beauty, um, you, you're we're going to look at your training, your preparation as a dancer, and uh, how strictly classical was your training, and how prepared do you feel you were to dance the pedipal repertoire? Um, in all honesty, I, I feel like uh, all of my training was to prepare me for a, a role like Aurora. Um, uh, I had Chinese teachers, so um, uh, most of the style that I was trained in was very Russian. Um, I also trained in RAD. I completed all of RAD, so every level, including Solo Seal, which is the Royal Academy of Dance. Right. Um, it's the English style mm -hmm. of dancing. Um, we also had lots of guest teachers from Cuba, from um, uh, America and uh, so yeah I actually trained in a lot of styles but the base of my training is very classical very traditional classical um, so when you're dancing and you've danced many many petty pas roles so we'll just slide through that um, compare the challenge of dancing a petty pas role and so what we're talking about when we say the petty pas role compare it to say a Balanchine role, or a William Forsythe role, or more recently, um, Liam Scarlett? Mm -hmm. um, honestly, I think every, every other choreographer, Balanchine, Forsythe, Liam, um, stems from Petipa. It's really the foundation of what we do. 
Um, and so I think as most students start, you always start training in classical ballet if you want to be capable of dancing all of mm -hmm. the other roles. Mm -hmm. um, and you can always go back to it. You'll never perfect it. Um, it that's, it's unattainable. <laughs> Perfection is unattainable. Um, so it's one of those things that we wake up in the morning, we take class, and that's what we train mm -hmm. for to do. And then from there, um, you are, then I think you are capable of doing all the other styles. I know when you are <clears throat> faced with one of the Petipa variations, um, the thing that seems to make every aspiring performer cringe is how exposed and how stripped down your technique needs to be. Mm -hmm. So maybe dancing something like um, Forsyth, mm -hmm. you're, you're not beginning and ending in fifth position mm -hmm. like that so much. Yeah. Um, that was just a thought that I had had. I mean, especially in Sleeping Beauty. Um, but yeah, there's a little bit more freedom, if you will, in the other styles. Whereas when you're in pink tights and pink point shoes and pretty <laughs> basic lighting, you can't hide. <laughs> you can't hide anything. Um, let's turn to you, Esteban. Esteban is um, a second-year soloist, and you've been in the company since 2013. Um, we've seen you do all sorts of great featured roles, and we see you both last year and this year in Bluebird, yes. one of the very important featured parts in Sleeping Beauty. Um, I'm going to ask the same question. Mm. Your training, uh, how, did, how do you think you were set up to accomplish the petty pop parts. Um, I have to say I have to agree with with Francis. Most of my training was uh, strictly classical. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was my teacher. He was my my very first teacher. Um, yeah, he we started. He started teaching us in in our backyard. I have a very big family. There's uh, ten siblings. Uh, so he decided to, he, he, was, he was a professional dancer. Uh, he left it for about 20 years. And then when he had 10 kids, he had to figure out what to do with all of us. So, <laughs> so he said, I'm going to teach them how to dance. Uh, so it started out just very much like uh, uh, to get our energy out. Uh, so I, uh, my first kind of exposure to dance was through my dad and his stories mm -hmm. and his, uh, his anecdotes about all of his uh, experiences as a, as a dancer. Um, but when I first started dancing, I had not ever seen a performance. I had not ever seen... Um, seen what a ballet was supposed to look like. It was all kind of from imagination. Um, so, yeah, that was that was kind of like my first exposure. And then my, I have a, a a brother who who is four years older than me. He he used to dance here, so he was kind of like my example mm -hmm. and kind of like where I would base ballet from um, 
Yeah, uh, eventually uh, my dad started trying to get us to see what, what dance was about, what ballet was about. Uh, I remember we used to have this friend uh, from, uh, from New York that would uh, find uh, VHS videos yeah. of yeah. different pas different performances, and she would put them all together and she would send us boxes of, of, of cassettes so that we would have some kind of point of reference. Uh, and those were kind of like the first ballets that I ever saw. It was fragments. It was uh, pas de deux, classical pas de deux, Sleeping Beauty, Don't You, uh, Swan Lake, uh, Bayadere, all of those. Yeah. That's how I kind of like became familiar with it. Uh, and so then once I saw it, you're like, ah, okay, that's what it's supposed to be like. So it was like a very uh, different kind of start. But uh, once I started kind of being more involved in it and seeing more of it, um, then you could kind of see what you were aiming, aiming for. Um, eventually, I, I, uh, I moved to Philadelphia, where I studied for three years. And then uh, at the end of those three years, I, I received a scholarship to study at the Royal Ballet School in London, which was like proper ballet <laughs> that's like the, the best way that the classics yeah you know yeah. it's right it's uh oh, yeah you know so to go from my backyard to that it was it was quite a quite a change um but uh yeah I feel like all of my training always revolved around classical ballet uh -huh. or what whatever I thought my version of classical yeah. ballet was um so in a way I thought that that was quite liberating to create that kind of uh, idea of what it's supposed to be like from uh, but from myself mm -hmm. you know and, and yeah and then at the end of it to have like a proper structure and to be kind of guided towards a more specific way of things it was it was very very nice <laughs> you're mentioning looking at all of those tapes makes me think of um, something that's kind of fun for all of us when was your first exposure to Sleeping Beauty? Do you remember? Did you see it? Did you... Oh, I don't know, actually. I remember watching videos of, of Swan Lake, of Don Q. I'm not sure I had a video of Sleeping Beauty. I always knew it was there. <laughs> so was it a role that you... I mean, at what point did it become a role that you would aspire to? In all honesty, well, uh, it was much later in life. Sleeping Beauty is quite different in that it's a very restrained ballet. Mm -hmm. So I think as a child, you're just more drawn to the, you know, the more virtuosic mm -hmm. ballets like Swan Lake mm -hmm. and... Um, and, and Sleeping Beauty, there's such a restraint and a subtlety that I'm not sure I appreciated mm -hmm. it as a young child. Um, now, yeah, I, I think later in life. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first time I heard about Sleeping Beauty was actually <clears throat> about, it was not about the whole ballet, it was actually about the bluebird in specific. Uh -huh. I remember my dad telling me this story about one of his friends that he, that he used to dance with 
at uh, Harkness in, in New York. Uh, and I remember him, him trying to explain to me the concept of the, the variation and what, it's what, what the effect is supposed to, to be. And I remember him telling me about this guy that he would just suspend in the air and he would hold and he was like, it was really like, like he was flying. And in my head, I was like, oh, well, you know, like he probably jumped very high, but like, I couldn't, couldn't yeah. really picture it. Uh, eventually, I got tapes of it and uh, I saw Rudolf Nureyev as, as the Prince uh, Desire. Um, but uh, then after that, I never really saw the Bluebird until much later on, uh, Yuri Soloviev. Uh, Russian dancer, I think the best bluebird that there is and that there ever will be. <laughs> and, I, and it's recorded, so we can yes. find it. Yes, you can find it. It's on YouTube. <laughs> um, well, drilling down, uh, we wanted to look at the Rose Adagio and the third act Wedding Potato as well, but so you can kind of compare them. Um, Aurora is, they say, completely exposed. Nothing will get her through but elegance, purity, and sheer technical skill. That right. It takes, and it's been said, it takes a truly accomplished ballerina to be successful as Aurora, and conversely, a young ballerina must perform Aurora to, so to speak, earn her stripes. So um, I wanted to show just a couple of shots here. We've looked at the original. This is Carlotta Brianza, who's an Italian ballerina who was spending time in St. Petersburg, and she was cast as the first Aurora. Um, and, oh, look. It's from last year, and that's Francis. In the costume, last year's costume, I doesn't look like the same costume. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's not dwell on that. Um, but there you are in the um, first act, which is sort of when, when you make your first appearance. So set the stage. What's happening? What is the Rosa Daggio all about? What so, are we talking about? It's Aurora's 16th birthday, and the spirit of the first act is really just like a youthful... Uh, high energy, um, a little bit naive and just innocent feeling. Um, and you can really, I think the first mm, 30 seconds, one minute of your entrance is, uh, describes that completely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then immediately from that, first entrance, you go straight into the Rose Adagio. To me, that is what makes the Rose Adagio the hardest. It's one thing to start a pas de deux, as we do in the third act, um, fresh off the stage. Um, you're stretched out, your calves are stretched out, um, uh, you're you're, you know, you're at the top of your stamina, but the, at the beginning of Rosa Daggio, your calves are probably a little bit cramped already. You're quite tired. You're breathing quite heavily. 
Um, and there's just a little bit of pantomime that you do right before um, it begins. So, and the Rosa Adagio is also very long <laughs> in length. Um, I was just watching rehearsal the other day and I completely forgot how long it was. Um, what, uh, tell the story. What's happening in the Rosa Adagio? So there are all about? four yeah. suitors um, basically trying to earn your love and uh, you're supposed to get married. <laughs> Um, At so, 16. Yes. Um, so you're dancing with four different gentlemen. That's another difficulty about the Rosadagio. Um, you're basically switching between four different men the entire time. And, uh, oh wow, that is quite a picture. They, there they are, <laughs> the four suitors. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so... Not only are you tired already, but there is a story to tell. And I think that's what makes the Rosa Daggio even more interesting and more um, uh, grand as it already is between the balances uh -huh, uh -huh. and uh, having to sustain the positions and the technique of it all. You're really looking into the eyes of these men and you're, um, you know, you're trying to tell a story. You're kind of... Uh, um, trying to discover who these gentlemen are. Um, so, yeah, I think the hardest thing is really having um, your face describe the story instead of uh, what you feel inside <laughs> is anxiety. <laughs> what, um, what's the deal with the rose? It's, why, is, why is it called the rose adagio? I, there are is, there roses? There are. <laughs> I don't know if there's... A, is there a deeper story to the, um, just the prop itself? I can't remember if there's a symbolism. I'm sure it, there's, there's always mm -hmm. of just layers of backstory. Mm -hmm. But each one of the so, suitors presents yes, in, with a rose. In fact, I think you can see them in, that, in the picture if you look really closely. Right. Um, we have a video clip, and that will also further illustrate. So why don't we go to the video? It ought to be next. So we stopped it right before that heart-stopping <laughs> moment. When um, So just a couple things, and then I want to be sure we move on to get more in, but um, the, you talked about the balances. So in the rose, we call it the Rosa Daja. She's got four partners, and she's dancing with each of them, and they each give her not one but two roses. Um, but the balances are kind of the thing. Uh, what are we talking about? Um, so right where the video cut off, you go straight into a PK attitude. And in the beginning, it's, um, you actually do it twice. And in the beginning, um, it's just balances. So you take your, the hand of your first partner, you let go, balance, and then you take the, your hand of the second partner, let go, and repeat that four times. And then the end, just to make things more difficult, there's a promenade, so you're in the attitude position. The man walks around you in that same position, balance, and then that happens also four times. But I have to say, just watching the video, the music really carries you. It's probably the most fantastic music of the whole production, I think. And in, luckily in the world, so. Yeah. Ever. I, yeah. So, my personal favorite. <laughs> we have that going yes. for us.
Um, and then the other quick comment about it, um, Pettipal loved props. He used, we, we talked earlier about Don Quixote and the fan. Um, I say we earlier in the season. Um, but, but if you look at all of the Pettipal works, and even some of the ones that are lost in history, but we just have some notes about them, he loved props. And so here in this one, we got the rose. Well, the trouble with props is they can go south. <laughs> so is there anything challenging about those roses? Or? Oh, absolutely. And you rehearse all of this, you know, in the studio beforehand, but the, you're, all, of, all four partners have to be in the exact position because you're dancing, like, especially in that last diagonal, um, you, there's, uh, like a coupe, double play, écarté, and right before you do that, you don't see where he is. So it's really, um, a testament to four men who know exactly where you're going to be, how to partner you, where to put you, um, but yeah. And then they hand you a flower. And then they hand you a flower, and um, I hate props. Props are the worst. (laughs) They make things a lot more difficult, so, yeah. Well, we always hope the best for those lovely roses. Um, we are going to um, leap ahead, so, so to speak. The, um, the ballet goes on, as you all know, probably the story, and the evil fairy comes in with her spindle, and you get pricked, and you fall asleep, but not you don't die. You only fall asleep for 100 years. And then there's, um, we go forward 100 years, and then we meet the, the handsome prince, who we call Prince Desiree, or the desirable one. And uh, you appear to him as a vision, and then he and the, the lilac fairy take you to, I mean, he t- the lilac fairy takes him to meet you, and he gives you the famous kiss that wakes you up, and love is declared, and happily ever after pretty much happens then. But the ballet's not over. <laughs> and that is quintessential pedipop. There has to be a wedding. There has to be what they call a divertissement. There have to be lots and lots of dances. And that's where Esteban comes in. Hello. <laughs> um, in um, and Tchaikovsky wrote some of his best music, not counting the Rosadage, for the variations in the third act. Um, the so let's let's just get to it. Um, who is the bluebird, and what's he doing at this wedding, <laughs> and who's his partner? So the, the, the story of the bluebird was originally, uh, you, you'll hear different versions. Everybody has a, a different idea of what, what he, he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing. But I like to kind of base it off the original story. It's a French writer. I'm not going to try to say her name because I, I, I don't think I could. Um, but uh, it's basically the story, uh, Princess Florine's uh, father marries this evil, uh, this not very nice woman uh, that has a daughter uh, who wants her daughter to marry um, Prince Charming, basically, uh, who, is, who eventually turns into the bluebird. He does, he's not interested in uh, the stepmother's daughter. He, he likes Florine. Uh, she can't take that, so she locks Florine up in a, in a tower. 
to keep her away from uh, from the prince. Uh, the prince still refuses to uh, to marry uh, the stepmother's uh, daughter, and uh, so she convinces an enchantress to put a curse on him uh, and turns him into a bird, the the bluebird. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, King Charmant uh, uh, still um, likes Florine, so he goes and visits her every day in, in her tower and uh, sings to her and brings her jewels and all these different things. Um, eventually, uh, they get discovered and they put uh, swords on the on the end on, on all around the tower so that the bluebird cannot. Uh, uh, stop and, and uh, visit no. Princess Florine, <laughs> eventually getting him injured. At the end of the day, it's a happy ending. He turns, he turns back into a prince, and they live a happy life. That's the original story. I like to believe that uh, in this, this particular moment where we are at this wedding, uh, we're, we're guests, you know, we're, we're, we're invited to the wedding to, to celebrate... Um, uh, Princess Aurora and Prince uh, Desiree. Uh, I am uh, still a bird. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, uh, that's that's who that's who I am at the mm-hmm. in, in that particular moment, um, and that, or at least that's who I who I try to be. <laughs> I just always thought it was it's such a beautiful little pot de deux, and the variations are very challenging. They're Mm. very famous for all students to learn and so yeah. on. Um, but I've always thought, <laughs> where did the bluebird come yeah. from? Yeah. They <laughs> love to incorporate all of those fairy tales. Yeah. In fact, edited out of our version are three or four other yes. fairy tales. Red Riding Hood. And yeah. uh, uh, Cinderella. Cinderella as well, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're looking at now is the original bluebird, oh, who wow. was um, danced by none other than Enrico Cicchetti, Oh, wow. And uh, the Florine, who is Barbara Nicotina, who was, they were the, the soubrette dancers at that period at the Imperial Russian Ballet. Um, I think this is a picture from last season, and there's Esteban with last year's partner. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a clip, and what I want to do is show it, and then I want you to describe a little bit about just the challenging technique that's mm-hmm. demanded. You talked about seeing the um, the video of, or uh, hearing about yes. the person who was yes. such an incredible yeah, jumper. Well, let's look at this. This is, um, oh, sorry, one more Lonnie. picture. Here's, yeah. Hi, and this is um, Lonnie, I think, yeah. Lonnie Weeks, who mm-hmm. is also appearing as Bluebird this season. Um, so you saw a couple of things there. <clears throat> um, talk about, first of all, that famous sequence of <laughs> jumps. Brise volets. The brise volets. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it, it's the that I believe that that diagonal is designed to give the the illusion of, of flight. Mm-hmm. You know, for the illusion of a bird is very light, is very um, energetic, very yeah, almost very happy. You know, it's. Um, you do not feel happy at that point when you're doing that. <laughs> I was going to say, what's the degree of, if you were being scored for competition, yeah. what would the degree of difficulty be for that? I personally find Bluebird to be one of the most difficult things ever. 
It's not necessarily technically challenging. The steps are basic ballet mm -hmm. steps. Mm -hmm. They're ballet. They're steps that you that you would do in class. Uh, at least whenever you're in school, you would do them every day. Uh, mm -hmm. There's steps that are not anything out of the ordinary, if you were to say. But to give that illusion of flight, to make it really believable, it is extremely difficult. It is extremely tiring. Uh, at that point, at the beginning of the coda, uh, you will have had about between 30 to 40 seconds between your variation and the coda, depending on how fast uh, the girl's variation is played. Uh, at the end of your variation, you cannot feel your legs. You cannot feel anything. <laughs> uh, you are just trying to get through it. Um, uh, I actually did it last night, and before uh, the third act started, I was preparing a cup of water so that, like, in between my variation and my and my coda, I I maybe drink some water. But it's really hard at that point because you have to decide whether you want to drink water or you want to breathe. So, <laughs> so at the end of the day, I think breathing is more important. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's extremely challenging, and I think not just physically, but mentally, uh, to not kind of give up in your head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's, that's the only way you can really get through it, is to think that you can. Because the minute that you, that you give in to those feelings of exhaustion, that's it. There is no coming back to it. And actually, the brise volet part is not the hardest. It's actually after you're done with that diagonal that you stop moving. Everything hits you all at once, and then your body feels heavy, your arms feel heavy, and you still have to try to keep the sensation of movement alive and the sensation of of still being a bird, you know, you, you cannot just be a bird while you're while you're doing steps and then stop and become a human and then walk around and then <laughs> I'm a bird again, you know. So <laughs> that's the hardest part about it is to maintain a kind of continuity throughout the whole the whole thing. Uh, and then if that's not enough brises, then the very last thing you do is another diagonal of brises. Uh, with a partner this time, but at that point, it, it's really just you're just trying to be done, you know. <laughs> carried by the music. Let's say carried by the music. Oh, yeah. The music helped. I was just I was just saying uh, um, uh, before we came out that this year, uh, in the when when I'm feeling most exhausted and when I'm feeling like I want to give up, then all of a sudden I will hear an instrument that I've never heard before in that particular moment. And then that all of a sudden kind of like gives me energy to keep going. It's also a good, a good reminder that it's not just me that is performing. The orchestra is performing throughout the entire thing and they're giving it their best. So it's only fair that I do the same. And I'm sure it must be very tiring to, to play a three-act ballet 
especially something like Sleeping Beauty, which is, I believe, equally challenging for the musicians as for the dancers. Uh, so yeah, definitely music helps, I think, music in all circumstances of, yeah. of dance. I think it, it, it's, at least for me, when I first started dancing, it was one of my main motivations to dance. You know, the, the, I liked the music. I, I liked how it made me feel. So it's easy to forget that sometimes and to focus on the technical aspects of it. But really, they are the same. They are, they're connected. They're, you cannot separate one from the other. Yeah. Mm. That's wonderful for you to call out mm. the fabulous score in yeah. our fabulous orchestra. Mm. Um, we didn't save enough time to have a beautiful long discussion <laughs> about the wedding prodigious, so I will pretty much just leave us. I think it was great for you to be able to at least talk about the Rose Adage. There's still the Grand Pas de Deux at the end that Aurora and the Prince dance. Um, and I did have the grand finale. This is Pedipa at his very best. And just by happenstance, we have Francis in the middle and Esteban on the side, which <laughs> just worked out that way. Um, they're probably going to kick us off the stage. Mm -hmm. um, but in 25 words or less, um, what do you want the audience to take away from Sleeping Beauty? Mm. I think in all honesty, you have to really uh, look for the details and the subtlety. Um, in the first act, it's very spirited. In the second act, it's dreamy. And the third act is just regal. And there's a very specific style in Sleeping Beauty. Um, it's, it's quite subtle, and it's just in the upper body. What we do below our waist is is classical ballet, what you see a lot on the stage, but what you see in the upper body, just the slight tilt of the head, tilt of the face, kind of how you catch the light with your cheek. I think um, we work very hard on that specifically in Sleeping Beauty. So, And this company does a beautiful job of it. Mm -hmm. um, we have come to the end of our time. I want to thank Esteban and thank Francis. Thank you for having us. Thank you all. And you all know the drill. You're supposed to exit over there and surrender your passes and tickets. And those of you who are staying, I know you'll enjoy the performance. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.